0: Good morning, and welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum. Let's thank Claudia Wilkins once again for this morning's performance. Claudia, thank you. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm senior minister here at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to welcome today the second speaker in our fall series on America as Global Citizen, Michael Mandelbaum. Today's forum is co-sponsored by the Institute for Global Citizenship at Macalester College. The institute is committed to preparing Macalester students to be effective and ethical global citizen leaders. As you know, Macalester, one of the nation's premier liberal arts colleges, is located here in St. Paul. Well, there in St. Paul. And we're honored today to have uh, with us the president of Macalester College, uh, Brian Rosenberg. Brian, you're somewhere out here, aren't you? There you are. Welcome, Brian. Nice nice to have you here. The Town Hall Forum's 26-year history of providing programs that are free and open to the public is made possible by gifts from friends and supporters like you. If you would like to be among those who support the forum, we invite you to pick up a donation envelope today as you exit the sanctuary at any one of the doors. You should have received a yellow index card when you entered the sanctuary this morning. Those are to be used for recording questions you might have for our speaker. The ushers will collect the cards at the end of the presentation and then we will present as many of them as time allows to Dr. Mandelbaum. As we have for 26 years, the Town Hall Forum is pleased to partner today with the news and information stations of Minnesota Public Radio. Some 60,000 listeners will hear the forum on NPR and it's entirely possible that this would be on American public radio as well, broadcast nationally. In a few moments, I'll receive the signal that NPR is recording today's program for broadcast, and at that time, I will introduce our speaker to you and to the radio audience. Dr. Mandelbaum will speak for approximately 30 minutes. At the conclusion of his presentation, I will reintroduce the forum to the radio audience while the ushers collect your questions. If it's necessary for you to leave early, that's a good time to do so and then we proceed with the question and answer period. At this time, I ask that anybody who has an electronic device that's going to make a noise during the presentation to turn it off, please. And I heard one go off just a moment ago, so I know there's some out there. Okay, they're off. Following today's presentation, we invite you all to join us in the great hall accessible by the doors on your left and right for a light lunch. Representatives from Barnes and Noble will be here today selling copies of Dr. Mandelbaum's books in the corridor down the hall to your left here, and Dr. Mandelbaum will be there and will be available for signing those books. For those of you who would like to continue a conversation on the topic presented this morning, A facilitated small group discussion will be held in the Bates Room located just across the hall here to your left as you exit. We welcome again the members of the Minnesota International Center's Great Decisions Program who will be facilitating that discussion today. Thank you for being here, for joining us for this town hall forum and in just a moment we will begin. Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 26 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson, I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis and moderator of today's program. We invite those of you who are listening on Minnesota Public Radio to visit us in person. All forums are free and open to the public, and information on our fall season can be found online at ewestminster.org. It's now my pleasure to introduce the second speaker in our fall series on America as Global Citizen. Michael Mandelbaum is the Christian A. Herder Professor of American Foreign Policy at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C. Educated at Yale, at Cambridge, and at Harvard, Michael Mandelbaum has been named one of the most influential people in American foreign policy by the World Affairs Councils of America. He is the author of 10 books, including his classic, The Ideas That Conquered the World, Peace, Democracy, and Free Markets. His most recent book is The Case for Goliath, how America acts as the world's government in the 21st century. Dr. Mandelbaum served in the office of the Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs, focusing on national security issues. He was a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and for the last 22 years, he has served as Associate Director of the Aspen Institute's Congressional Project, educating leaders in both houses of Congress on the latest thinking in American foreign policy. The Town Hall Forum is pleased to be joined by McAllister College's Institute for Global Citizenship in co-sponsoring today's program. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Dr. Michael Mandelbaum.
1: Well thank you very much. It is a pleasure for my wife and me to be here in your beautiful city and it's an honor to be addressing this prestigious forum, very well known throughout the country. I want to begin my discussion of my book, The Case for Goliath, with its subtitle, which is also its thesis, How America Acts as the World's Government in the 21st century. It's unusual and as I have discovered controversial to refer to the sum of the various foreign policies that the United States carries out as being equivalent to acting as the world's government. But government is I believe a useful and illuminating term for what the United States does beyond its borders for four reasons. First, using the term government to refer to American foreign policy tells us something important about the world. It tells us specifically that the advances of the technologies of transportation, communication, and war have knitted the different parts of our planet so closely together that, as is the case with local and national communities, The world itself now requires some of what governments provide. Referring to the role of the United States in the world as a global government also tells us something important about the United States. It tells us that this country plays an unusual, indeed I think unprecedented, role in the world in the 21st century. That role is not, I think, captured by the more familiar terms great power or even superpower. A different term is, I believe, needed. The most popular candidate these days for a term to describe what the United States does beyond its borders is empire. But the term empire is, I think, inaccurate in this context because the United States assumed its global role accidentally rather than deliberately. The role that the United States plays as the world's government is the outgrowth of policies adopted under different circumstances and for different reasons during the Cold War. And to call the United States an empire is also inaccurate, I believe, because the United States does not do what empires traditionally have done, namely govern other peoples directly usually against their will. The use of the term government is, I believe, helpful in understanding both American foreign policy and the world in which we live for a third reason. It tells us something important about other countries. It explains why, despite all the criticism we hear virtually every day in every corner of the world, there has been no direct effective opposition to the American global role from other countries, at least other important countries. Opposition that that, that such countries could certainly mount if they chose to do so. They have chosen not to do so because the United States and its foreign policies do not, in effect, threaten them. Indeed, other governments, at least, recognize, at least tacitly, that they benefit from much of what the United States does in the world. There's a fourth and final reason that I believe the use of the term government to describe the American global role is justified. And that fourth reason is that, in my view, that role, that term is accurate. The United States does provide some, although certainly not all, of the services to the world that governments furnish within countries. The United States, for example, helps to keep order in the world. And keeping order is, after all, the first duty of government. By some accounts, the reason that government is established in the first place. The United States helps keep order in the world in two particularly noteworthy ways. First, this country provides what I call reassurance. The American presence in Europe and in East Asia relieves countries of these regions of anxieties that they might otherwise feel, anxieties that their neighbors could threaten them. American forces in Europe and in in East Asia serve as a buffer, a pacifier, you might even call them a babysitter. The American philosopher and comedian Woody Allen once said that ninety percent of life is showing up. Well, a hundred percent of reassurance is showing up. The mere presence of American troops and American military forces of other kinds in these two regions helps to reassure the countries of these regions. Hence the service of reassurance is invisible and unappreciated but highly important nonetheless. A second way that the United States helps to keep order in the world is by assuming the major responsibility for dealing with what is by general accounts the greatest threat to global security in the 21st century, namely the spread of nuclear weapons to countries that do not now possess them. Now, how the United States acts to prevent nuclear proliferation is indeed controversial. American policies toward Iran, North Korea, and, of course, Iraq, are the subjects of heated controversy. But even those most critical of these policies agree that the goal of preventing nuclear proliferation is a worthy, indeed a necessary one, and even those most critical of how the United States goes about trying to prevent the spread of nuclear weapons assume that it is the United States that will take the lead in this task. Now, the Iraq War can be seen as an example of the United States resisting nuclear proliferation. So let me say a word about how that war fits into the global role of the United States as I see it. And specifically, let me say something about the rationale for that war. In my view, the real reason or intervening in Iraq, or at least the best reason, the most justifiable reason, was not the one that the administration publicly presented. The best, the most defensible reason to intervene militarily in Iraq was not to eliminate the chemical weapons that Saddam Hussein was believed, genuinely, but as it turned out wrongly, to possess. The best reason for the Iraq War, the most defensible reason in my judgment, was to prevent Saddam Hussein from getting, some years in the future, nuclear weapons, which in his possession would have posed a genuine threat to American interests. Now, insofar as the war in Iraq was undertaken to prevent Saddam Hussein from getting, at some point in the future, nuclear weapons, it was a preventive war. And as such, it followed from the security doctrine issued in the wake of the attacks on New York and Washington of September 11, 2001, in the fall of 2002. Note that a preventive war differs fundamentally from a preemptive war, even though the terms are sometimes used interchangeably. A preemptive war is undertaken by one side when it knows for sure that the other side is about to launch an attack against it. When a preemptive attack is undertaken, war is certain, the only question is which side will strike the first blow. A preventive war, by contrast, is a war undertaken to prevent trouble at some undetermined time in the future. The case for applying the doctrine of preventive war rests on the special characteristics of nuclear weapons. Characteristics that mean that once a rogue state such as Saddam Hussein's Iraq or a terrorist group has obtained possession of nuclear weapons, it is too late to prevent serious damage. The logic here leads to the conclusion that the use of force to forestall the possession of nuclear weapons because of the special properties of these weapons is justified. Now, whether or not preventive war was a legitimate, persuasive reason for the United States to go to war in Iraq, it was certainly not the reason that the Bush administration emphasized in justifying the war. Apparently, the administration regarded uh, this doctrine as being insufficiently attractive to the public to use it as the basis for its public justification for war. And it seems to me that this doctrine, whatever its abstract merits, is not likely to establish itself at the center of American foreign policy. Iraq, that is, is not likely to serve as a precedent for future policies for three reasons. First, the war has turned out badly, or at least it has proven far more costly than the American public expected it to be and far more costly than the American public, to judge by the polls, is willing to pay for. It is now an unpopular war. Second, the other two likely targets for the application of this doctrine, for preventive war to prevent nuclear proliferation namely Iran and North Korea, do not lend themselves to a preventive war for a variety of reasons. Third, and not least important, the doctrine of preventive war, no matter how justifiable it may be in dealing with the problem of nuclear proliferation, runs contrary to international law. It violates the fundamental principle at the heart of international law namely, the principle of sovereignty. Nations, according to international law, are justified in going to war against a country because of what that country has done, but are not justified in going to war because of what that country might do in the future, or because of the kind of country it is, which was the justification for preventive war against Iraq. And it's worth noting that this last point, the incompatibility of the doctrine of preventive war with the broad principles of international law, is also true of the other innovation in American security policy in the post-Cold War era, namely humanitarian intervention. That is, military intervention not for the purpose of self-defense, but for the purpose of rescuing distressed people the doctrine of humanitarian intervention was practiced by the United States in the 1990s in Somalia in Haiti in Bosnia and in Kosovo humanitarian intervention also is contrary to international law according to which the only legitimate reason for war is to repel cross-border aggression now Preventive war and humanitarian intervention are innovations of two different presidential administrations in the United States. The second Bush administration in the first place, in the first case the Clinton administration in the second. These two administrations are generally regarded, not least by their members, as having been polar opposites where foreign policy is concerned. But the two practices that they pioneered, and with which these two administrations will be forever associated, humanitarian intervention and preventive war, are in fact like fraternal twins. Outwardly different, they they share the same political DNA. They are based on American power, American beliefs, and the American position in the world. Neither is popular with other countries and both have proven unpopular in the United States and unpopular with Americans for the same reason. Both have led to nation-building, something that Americans don't like to do and generally do not do well. Well, in the global economy as well as in international security, the United States does some of the things that governments do for economic life within countries one thing that the United States does is what I've called in the case for Goliath enforcement within countries governments enforce contracts which provides the confidence without which commerce cannot take place the United States does this on a global scale the American Navy for example patrols the world's two most important trade routes the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans like Reassurance, the global service of enforcement that the United States provides, is vital, invisible, all but taken for granted. In the international economy as well, the United States supplies the world's most frequently used money, the dollar. And through the International Monetary Fund, this country has occasionally acted as a kind of lender of last resort, even as central banks do within countries. The United States has also performed the function that economists say governments must carry out in times of economic downturn. The United States has been the world's consumer of last resort. American consumption, especially over the last decade, has acted as the engine of economic growth around the world, although this service has presented perils both to the United States and to the global economy because of the large American current account deficit to which it has contributed. There's one other global service to the international economy that the United States provides that's worth noting. Within countries, governments sponsor public utilities, providing power and water. The United States does something similar on a global scale by assuring a global supply of oil, doing this by protecting the largest source of readily accessible oil, the Persian Gulf. The American role vis-a-vis the global energy system and in the Persian Gulf qualifies in my view as another global governmental service. Now energy is also the area where in my judgment American foreign policy is least satisfactory, indeed where it does the most harm. The Case for Goliath is generally an analytical, not a critical book, but it does include an extended criticism of American energy policy. Our country's high per capita consumption of energy increases global demand, and thereby puts the world at the mercy of the largest suppliers of oil that tend to be undemocratic, unreliable, unstable, and in some cases, aggressive. Indeed, uh, high energy consumption in the United States has several bad consequences, and those consequences turn out to be, in effect, a list of the world's most serious problems. High American energy consumption funds terrorism, it props up bad governments, it risks triggering geopolitical competition with China and perhaps even India for secure supplies of oil. It aggravates the American current account deficit, and last but certainly not least, America's high per capita consumption of energy worsens the problem of global warming. Well, given these unfortunate consequences, why don't we change our ways? The reason is not the machinations of the oil companies, although their contribution to this problem is not entirely constructive. The reason that American energy policy does not change is that we, the American public, resist this change. The solution to the problem that high American energy consumption presents is higher energy and especially gasoline prices imposed through taxation. This would lower demand and make alternative sources of energy economically more viable. In the long run, this would have great benefits to the United States as well as to the rest of the world, but in the short term, higher gas taxes would be painful and might even trigger a deep recession. The time horizon of individuals, and therefore the politicians who court their votes, tends to be the short term, and therefore constructive action on energy is not taken in the United States. We're all familiar with the demonstrations around the world in various cities against one, ver- one aspect or another of American foreign policy. But I have thought that if those who take to the streets in protest against American policy in Iraq or American policy on globalization really want to make the world a better place, they would march in the streets in favor of higher gasoline taxes in the United States. Well, given what I've said about American foreign policy in general, given my characterization of the American role in the world as being on the whole benign, even uniquely so, the question arises, why does American foreign policy arouse so much anger in other countries? Why, to use a phrase that became familiar after the attacks of September 11th, do they hate us? I devote an entire chapter of the case for Goliath to this question. And I believe that hatred is not quite the right term to characterize the world's attitude toward the United States. Resentment is a better term. And countries resent the United States because it is powerful. Nobody, after all, loves Goliath. Moreover, resentment is fueled by the fear of what the United States might do with its extraordinary power, although that fear is not so great, I hasten to add, as to prompt major countries actually to do anything to reduce American power. Still, negative sentiments about the United States are unlikely to disappear because these sentiments are more or less timeless and for other specific reasons. One such reason is that American foreign policies will always be controversial and will always be criticized and should be. They're controversial within the United States after all. Why shouldn't they be controversial in the rest of the world? This is the normal pattern in democracies. But as with criticism within democracies, criticism of American foreign policy around the world does not necessarily bespeak a desire to overthrow the system entirely. Winston Churchill once said that one should never criticize one's own government when abroad or cease to do so when at home. Well, insofar as the United States acts as the world's government, people in other countries are at home in talking about it, and therefore, in criticizing American foreign policy, they're simply carrying out their Churchillian obligation. A second reason for the persistence of anti-American sentiment is that in some circumstances, in some countries, it is politically convenient. The United States serves as a scapegoat the object of blame for harm actually caused by impersonal disruptive forces such as globalization, or by the shortcomings of local governments that are of course eager to shift the blame away from themselves. This is especially true in the Arab Middle East. Third, there is I think a special problem with this particular administration, especially as concerns Europe. This is not because of the personalities of the people holding office now, but because of ideology. There is no mainstream political party in Europe like our Republican Party. That is to say, there is no political party in Europe capable of winning and holding power that shares the core beliefs of the American Republican Party, namely assertive nationalism, low taxes and small government, and social conservatism. Now I'm not making a partisan point here and the case for Goliath is not a partisan book. It can certainly be argued that Europe should be and is becoming more Republic, more Republican in its policies. One can point to economic reforms on the agendas of various European countries or sentiment about immigration and seeing Europe moving toward Republican policies. Rather, I'm making an analytical point. For Europeans, because of their political culture, Republicans in power seem alien. And they seem even more alien without the common cause of the Cold War to bind Europe and the United States together. And all the more alien and the more threatening because in the wake of the Cold War, the United States is so powerful. Well, there's a final reason that the United States is not likely to get much thanks for its international role, no matter how constructive that role is. If other countries acknowledge the American role and the benefits that they receive from it, they might come under pressure actually to pay for it. That is to say, they would risk losing their status as free riders, Free rider is defined by economists as a party or a group that gets something for nothing. And that's a deal that no one is going to give up willingly. In general, therefore, the anti-American sentiment that we see around us comes with the territory. It's a function of the American role in the world and will persist as long as that role continues, which then raises the question, how long will the United States continue to act as the world's government. In my judgment, the rest of the world will not do anything to stop the United States from carrying out the tasks of government the world over, but neither will the rest of the world do anything to help us carry out those tasks. And this is true, I think, even in the case of the European Union, which is composed of large, wealthy, and often ambitious countries that talk about playing a global role. The European Union talks about a global role, but it does not, in my judgment, actually play one. This is obvious where the use of force is concerned. The larger countries of Europe, once the great military powers of the planet, now have tiny militaries and quasi-pacifist public attitudes toward international conflict. But the European abdication of a global role is, in my view, as I argue in the case for Goliath, true, even in non-military areas where the Europeans are vocal. Global warming is one example. The Europeans are the architects of the Kyoto Protocol designed to reduce the emission of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, and although their performance in reducing those emissions is better than that of the United States, it's still, by the standards needed, not very good, and many of the European countries are not reaching the targets for reducing emissions that they themselves have set. The European reluctance to to play a serious global role is also true in the case of global poverty, which Europeans tout as the world's most pressing problem, but where they do no more, and in some ways do even less, than does the United States. Europe, in short, in the first decade of the 21st century, is inward-looking. It's, in foreign policy, parochial. a parochial, inward-looking Europe is not to be sneezed at. Europe remains, perhaps, the most important part of the world. And the European achievement since World War II in designing a, a tariff union that became an integrated economic community and creating a zone of peace in what had been for centuries the most violent part of the planet is an extraordinary, monumental contribution to the rest of the world. The Europeans sometimes act as if the European Union does a service to the rest of the world simply by existing. And in that, I believe they are correct. They do perform a valuable service to the world in Europe, but not beyond it. American foreign policy would surely be more complicated, but the United States and the world would, I believe, be better off if Europe really did become a serious global presence but I do not anticipate this happening in the foreseeable future. That means that where the United States practices unilateralism in foreign policy, it does so as much by default as by choice. And unilateralism is a problem, I believe, not because other countries will oppose the American role as the world's government, but because the American public may tire of supporting this role. I should emphasize that the price of playing this role is now for the American public relatively low because no major country opposes it. But on the horizon loom loom huge competing costs with that role, costs that will be magnified by the explosion in entitlement spending as the baby boom generation, those Americans born between 1946 and 1964, begins to retire. As the costs of these entitlement programs soar, the American public may find the choice between guns and butter, that is between carrying out international commitments and funding the entitlement programs to which this country has become committed over the last generation and more, to be a painful one. If the choice between guns and butter becomes painful, then in the absence of a serious and direct international threat, Americans are likely to choose domestic over international priorities. That is why I conclude in the case for Goliath that the greatest threat to America's role as the world's government in the decades ahead comes not from China but from Medicare. Well if the United States should reduce its role as the world's government the result would be I believe not better global governance but rather less of it. This in turn would make for a less secure, less prosperous world. Even I believe the harshest critics of American foreign policy would be unhappy with the consequences of the global eclipse of the United States. How the role of the American, uh, of the United States in the world will play out domestically is I think unclear. What is clear is the attitude that the rest of the world will adopt toward the American role as the world's government, no matter what happens. For other countries, they will continue to criticize that role, they will not pay for it, and they will miss it when it is gone. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Michael Mandelbaum. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster Church and the moderator of today's forum. Our guest today is American foreign policy expert Michael Mandelbaum. While the ushers collect questions from the audience at Westminster, I would like to thank the co-sponsor for today's forum, the Institute for Global Citizenship at Macalester College, and the school's president, Brian Rosenberg. Macalester College, one of the nation's premier liberal arts colleges, prepares men and women to be effective and ethical global citizen leaders. We invite you to join the Westminster Town Hall Forum on Thursday, November 2nd, when author Reza Aslan explores America and the Islamic world. Further information on our fall series is available online at ewestminster.org. And now, Dr. Mandelbaum, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. What, in your view, should be the central or among the central goals of US foreign policy?
1: Uh, An important question. Uh, I would name two. Well, I I would name three. Give, give me, give me one more, uh, and I mentioned two of them uh, in my talk. I think that the greatest threat to international security comes from the spread of nuclear weapons to countries that would use them for purposes antithetical to the interests of the United States and the world as a whole. North Korea and Iran come to mind. So I think the effort to keep these countries from obtaining nuclear weapons, or to, or at least the effort to contain their nuclear programs is vital not just for the United States but for the people of the Middle East in the case of Iran and for East Asia in the case of North Korea but as we have seen this is a very difficult task and one that the United States is not going to be able to accomplish without the assistance of other countries in the case of Iran Russia in the case of North Korea South Korea and especially China The United States is certainly powerful but we can't go it alone in these areas and at this point we're not getting the assistance we really need in order to solve these problems but that is the first problem. Second, uh, there's a problem that we could deal with unilaterally and should deal with and that is reducing American energy consumption. Uh, This is in our short-term geopolitical interest and in our long-term economic interest. We could do more to deal with the world's most pressing problems by easing the pressure on the global oil market than we could do in any other way, and we could do it alone. It's only a matter of political will. But evidence for that political will is lacking, and I've had some personal experience of this. I write a monthly column for the Long Island newspaper Newsday. I've done this for close to two decades, so I've written dozens, I guess hundreds of columns. Last spring, uh, at the height of uh, the run-up in gasoline prices, I wrote a column which argued that the problem with gas prices in the United States, this is when they'd gone over $3 a gallon, was not that they were too high, but that they were too low, that we really needed European-style prices in order to wean ourselves from what President Bush rightly called our addiction to oil. My editor at Newsday reported that of all the many columns I've written for that newspaper, this one attracted the widest and most intense reader response. And he also informed me that that response was unanimously negative. The third important priority of American foreign policy, to which I also alluded in my talk and that I also discuss in the case for Goliath, is to continue the international presence that underpins the ongoing process of globalization. For all of the problems associated with globalization, I think it is a powerfully benign phenomenon in two ways. First, it makes us as Americans richer, and that's a good thing. Second, globalization offers the best hope for lifting people who are now poor in the Third World out of poverty, and it has compiled a remarkable record in China, lifting several hundred million people out of poverty. So I believe that globalization, that is global economic integration, is vital for our future and the future of the planet, and I believe that the United States plays an important role in providing the global services that makes wider economic integration possible. So those are the three priorities that I would suggest for the foreign policy of the United States.
0: Dr. Mandelbaum, several of our questioners noted that you did not mention the United Nations in your comments on world government. Did, do you feel the UN is impotent or irrelevant? Do you foresee the role of world government in the future shifting from the U.S. to the N, UN, perhaps?
1: Uh, very good question and an important question. Uh, the United Nations is not impotent, but it's not very important, nor is it destined to be. It's not irrelevant, but it's not central. It can play, at best, a modest, useful role in global governance. But the potential for the United, States, for the United Nations is strictly limited because of the nature of the organization. The United Nations is not a state itself like the United States. It doesn't command resources on its own. It is in fact a trade association of sovereign states, a place where sovereign states meet and pass resolutions on which they're not necessarily going to act. And probably they wouldn't pass most of the resolutions they do if they thought there was any chance that they would be carried out. Uh, I've sometimes said that to expect the United Nations to perform the serious roles of global governance that the United States carries out would be like expecting the National Association of Hospitals in Washington to perform heart surgery. It just isn't going to happen. And that puts all the greater burden on the United States to perform these global governmental roles. The, the great hope for easing the burden on the United States here is not I think the United Nations but rather a kind of association or league of wealthy democracies. We should be looking not so much to the United Nations as to the European Union and to Japan and ultimately to China and India. And over the long term I think these countries may be persuaded that it is in their interest to help the United States provide these global services but in the short term as I said in uh, my prepared remarks and as I argue unhappily, ruefully in the case for Goliath. In the short term I'm pessimistic. Several
0: questions about uh, nuclear policy of the US related to Pakistan and Israel. Doesn't our policy of allowing countries like those two to have nuclear weapons breed resentment in much of the rest of the world?
1: Um, Well I would say two things. First the United States does have a double standard when it comes to nuclear weapons, and that is inevitable and not a bad thing. Uh, It's not polite to say so publicly, and it's hard to codify it in laws or policies that have universal application, but some countries are different from others, and democracies are far more reliable custodians of nuclear weapons than authoritarian regimes, especially authoritarian regimes with virulent, aggressive, ideologies such as North Korea and Iran so uh, although there is a certain there, there is what one might uh, by some standards term hypocrisy in American uh, policy toward nuclear proliferation in fact the the dual standards or the bi-level policy is in the interest not just of the United States but of the world as a whole now as for the resentment that this causes Uh, I'm skeptical about it. Other countries talk about this, but countries decide to get nuclear weapons for local, domestic, strategic, and political reasons, not on the basis of who else has them, unless other countries are their immediate neighbors. So uh, although nuclear proliferation is a problem, I don't think that the differentiated American policy toward Israel, India, and Pakistan on the one hand, Iran, Iraq, and North Korea on the other, really has anything to do with the drive for nuclear weapons on the part of Iran, Iraq, or North Korea. And I don't think a different American policy toward Israel, India, and Pakistan would have any effect on these countries.
0: What are the options the United States now has in relation to North Korea and their possibility of acquiring nuclear weapons, especially if they continue the testing as they're threatening to do?
1: Well, uh, American options are all bad ones. Uh, We don't have uh, a, a viable or at least we don't have an attractive military option and have not ever had because North Korea, whatever the state of its nuclear program, has a very large conventional military force including tens of thousands of artillery pieces ranged along the demilitarized zone within range of the southern the South Korean capital of Seoul Uh, so, so North Korea if a war came to Korea again even though North Korea would lose that war could do terrible damage to a city of 8 million people the South Koreans are not surprisingly reluctant to start a war and under most circumstances I think that the United States could not be justified in going to war conducting military operations without the permission of South Korea so that's point one. Point two, the countries that have leverage on North Korea and could in fact bring its nuclear program to a halt are its neighbors South Korea and China. China in particular if it decided to shut off all shipment of fuel and food to North Korea probably could cause a collapse of the regime. But it's precisely because China fears a collapse of the regime that it has refused so far to take these measures. The Chinese fear an influx of North Korean refugees and in addition the Chinese don't particularly want to see a united non-communist Korea. So while China certainly does not want North Korea to have nuclear weapons, neither has China thus far been willing to take the steps that would assure that North Korea could not proceed with its nuclear weapons program because the Chinese fear that the consequences of of such steps would be adverse for them. So that's the second point. Now let me add a third point. Not immediately, but in the intermediate range future, North Korea could pose a threat not to its neighbors but to the United States and this is the great concern that I think all of us should have. North Korea and North Korea's nuclear weapons program could threaten the United States in two ways. First, uh, the North Koreans could sell or give nuclear explosives to other countries or to a terrorist group. I'm not saying that this is inevitable but we know that North Korea has sold every military technology it has ever developed. And the danger of a a terrorist group getting hold of a nuclear explosive is, of course, the great nightmare of the 21st century. Our greatest concern is and ought to be a nuclear September 11th. And the North Korean nuclear program brings that within the realm of conceivability. That is why the UN resolution condemning the North Korean nuclear explosion has has called for a tight embargo on North Korea, but just how that embargo is going to be enforced is far from clear. There's a second direct threat that North Korea could pose to the United States, and this would occur if the North Koreans succeeded in testing a long-range ballistic missile, and they've already successfully tested a missile that could reach America's chief Asian ally, Japan. That means that uh, it seems to me unlikely that any American administration, whether Democratic or Republican, would allow North Korea successfully to test a long-range missile. And that means that if and when North Korea decides to test a missile, the United States might well feel compelled to take military action, to launch an airstrike to knock the experimental missile out before it can be launched. It is also possible that the American government will decide that in order to prevent North Korea from selling or giving dangerous nuclear materials to terrorist groups it is necessary to impose impose a tight embargo an embargo of a kind that would qualify as an act of war so in two ways both by imposing a real blockade, a full-scale naval blockade that does qualify as an act of war or by launching a preemptive attack on a potential North Korean missile launch, the United States might find itself, for reasons of self-defense, engaging in military activity against North Korea. That is starting, for reasons that I believe all Americans would probably endorse, starting a second Korean war. That means that the North Korean nuclear test has the potential to be very, very serious indeed.
0: Politicians often use the phrase rogue states in their remarks about different nations around the world. You, as an academic, use that phrase today. Could you define for us what you mean by rogue state and then name some of those around the country, around the world, and what it is we might do about them?
1: Sure, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a convenient shorthand. I know some people don't like the term, but it refers to Iran and uh, North Korea both of which have uh, repressive, undemocratic regimes, uh, although the North Korean regime is far more repressive than the Iranian regime, and both of of which have ideologies that are hostile to other countries, especially the United States, and both of which are committed, at least rhetorically, and in some ways in practice, to aggressive foreign policy. So it's, it's that combination of three things a repressive regime internally, a hostile ideology, and an aggressive foreign policy that makes for what I would regard as a rogue regime.
0: And would you care to name other ones? The questioner wanted to hear if you had other states you would define as such.
1: I would not define other countries uh, in that way. There are certainly uh, some very ugly regimes in the world. Uh, Syria, for example, is repressive and aggressive but it's not, it's it's aggressive against its neighbors, not so much uh, against the West and the United States, and it certainly doesn't have an aggressive ideology. The country formerly known as Burma, now known as Myanmar, has an extremely repressive uh, domestic political system, but it's not attacking its neighbors. So at this point, I would confine the term rogue state to North Korea and Iran, and that, uh, incidentally, makes for both good news and bad news for the world and for American foreign policy. The good news is there are only two rogue states, only two states that really pose an active threat to world peace. The bad news is that we don't have working policies for dealing with either of them.
0: One of our questioners asks you to take a look 25 years ahead. And where where will the hot spots be in the global uh, scene then, particularly interested in China and perhaps some conflict that we might anticipate between our nation and that nation over resources?
1: Well that's a, a, a very good question and one that neither I nor in my judgment anybody else is particularly well equipped to answer. Uh, I like to say that uh, the book, my book, The Case for Goliath comes with a 20 year warranty. After two decades Uh, I I take no responsibility for anything that's said within its covers or any predictions. Uh, The the rise of China is surely going to be one of the major events of the 21st century and the rise of China does present potential problems for other countries, first and foremost China's neighbors but ultimately the United States which is after all an Asia-Pacific country and an Asia-Pacific power. Personally, I am relatively sanguine that we can avoid serious conflict with China. Some academics like to compare China of today with Wilhelmine Germany, with Germany of the first part of the 20th century, which ultimately created, or uh, carried out policies that led to two world wars, at least in the case of World War I, in large part because it sought a wider role in the world, a bigger place under the sun and felt that other countries were not making way for it. I think things have changed a lot in a hundred years. I think that the Chinese leadership, although it certainly wants to play an important role in the world, doesn't seek to play the kind of role that Germany did, and in particular doesn't seek to conquer territory that it does not now control. And I believe that the rest of the world, including the United States, has welcomed and will welcome a wider Chinese role in the world as long as that role is peaceful. So I think that the chances for the peaceful absorption of the rise of China, and uh, somewhat later perhaps, the rise of India, are very good. Things could go badly wrong, but I wouldn't bet on it.
0: Several of our audience members have asked about Latin America, which is uh, an area of the world that receives relatively modest attention from our government these days particular interest in President Chavez of Venezuela and the growing coalition he seems to be forming in that part of the world. Any comments on Latin America?
1: Sure. There's an old saying that uh, Americans will do anything for Latin America except read about it. Uh, the, the, the relative unimportance of Latin America is actually uh, a rather good sign because it means that there isn't trouble there. We have had the emergence of President Chavez as a rather noisy, anti-American figure. And I would say uh, three things about him. First, he is purely the product of the rise in the price of oil. Uh, If his oil revenues were cut in half, we wouldn't hear of him, and he wouldn't be President of Venezuela. Second, the tradition that Chavez represents is not an internationalist one. He's not a communist. He's not a Marxist-Leninist. He is a populist. There is a tradition of Latin American populism involving the cult of the leader, expanded government services, handouts to the poor, and budgets that exceed revenues that ultimately land countries that practice this kind of populism in economic trouble and ultimately in the arms of the International Monetary Fund. Uh, This is a Latin American tradition and it has generally harmed the countries where it has been practiced, and I fear that that will be true of Venezuela under Chavez as well. Third, although there are a few other voices in Latin America echoing what uh, Mr. Chavez says, I don't see him as uh, the leader of a bloc, and I don't see the policies that he is carrying out as the wave of the future.
0: Question from one of our audience members about Cuba. When Fidel Castro underwent surgery recently, there was a rush of energy and sputtering from Washington. What role, if any, should the U.S. take toward Cuba at the time when leadership transition occurs?
1: Uh, well, that's a, a, a very good question. Um, what we have to hope for in Cuba is a soft landing. Uh, although uh, there, there is, I suppose, a, a possibility of, a, of an armed uprising in Cuba, Uh, That, I think, would probably not be desirable because it would be bloody. Lots of people would be killed. Uh, Cuba has taken a particular direction for the last four decades, an unfortunate direction, one that's been bad for the Cuban people, but you can't turn a country around uh, immediately after the, the leader who has imposed that direction has passed from the scene. So I think what we have to hope for and what we should work for is a gradual, peaceful transition in post-Castro-Cuba from this bankrupt and unpopular communist system that's been imposed by force over the last four decades to a more normal representative system, which, however, is probably going to take time to implement. And and above all, we should be mindful of the welfare uh, of the Cuban people.
0: Given our experience over the last 50 years with countries that we once were in military conflict with, are economic and cultural forces more effective in bringing change around the world than direct military action?
1: I think there is no doubt that that is so, and I refer those who are interested in this theme to a book that I published in the year 2002 called The Ideas That Conquered the World, Peace, Democracy, and Free Markets in the 21st Century. I believe that those ideas have proven uniquely powerful in the last three decades, and the reason that the world now is much more favorably disposed toward our values, if not toward our policies, is because of the force of those ideas and the example of those ideas in practice. It seems to me, and I've I've argued in the ideas that conquered the world, for example, that the examples of the peaceful transformation of Germany and Japan after World War II had a a much greater impact on the world and even the communist world than all of the military policies that we carried out, necessary though many of those policies were. So I do agree with the premise uh, of uh, of the question, and that means that the optimal American policy for making the world a better place is to do whatever we can to support the structure of the present world and let these long-term trends take their course. Because I do believe, and I argue in the ideas that conquered the world, that history is on our side.
0: You were suddenly appointed Secretary of State. What would be your first
1: priorities? Uh, Demand a recount. as I've said, I think that the the area where a change in policy could have the most beneficial effects on the world and on the United States is in American energy policy. So if I were offered the position of Secretary of State, I would say to the President who offered it, and it's hard to imagine such a person uh, existing, let alone being elected, I would say that I would take the job on condition that he or she committed him or herself to a different energy policy. Because I think that a different energy policy not only would be good in the long run, but would give the United States far more leverage than we now have over the range of problems that we confront, even and especially including Iran, but also including North Korea.
0: Since military aggression begets distrust and hatred and future wars, one listener asks, why not develop a foreign policy using economic resources to build improved education, health, and employment in countries we perceive to be a threat to us?
1: Well, it's, it's a good idea and the United States has consistently tried to do that, but sometimes it doesn't work. Uh, with the Saddam Husseins of the world. sweet reason and economic incentives, are just not very effective. That is also true of the dictator of North Korea, apparently, and it's also true of the mullahs of Iran. Now, if these governments were removed from power, if the peoples of these countries had the opportunity to select their government, I'm sure that we would have better relations with them, but uh, bad governments, dictators, tyrants serve as a kind of, act as a kind of roadblock against the, the kinds of ties with other countries that we would like to have. And so sometimes there's, there's nothing for it but to engage in uh, military relations and sometimes even military confrontations with such regimes. But obviously, over the long term, uh, educational ties, cultural exchanges, and above all, economic interdependence does far more to bring about the kind of world that we want than military confrontation can do. Uh, I would say of uh, the use of force, what uh, Winston Churchill said about uh, democracy, or I I would paraphrase, he said that uh, uh, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. I would say that the use of force uh, is, in most cases, the worst kind of foreign policy except where all the others have failed.
0: Thank you, Michael Mandelbaum.
1: Thank you.